how God was seeking a bride for his son. Each book is different from every other book. I'm trying to give you the keys for you to unlock it for yourself. You're listening to Unlocking the Bible by David Pawson. Visual materials featured in this talk can be found online at davidpawson.org. This is Jonah. Well now, we've already looked at one of the books from the law section of the Old Testament and we've looked at another from a history section of the library which we call the Bible. We've also looked at some of the wisdom literature when we looked at Ecclesiastes. For the next few studies we're going to look at the section of the library called prophecy. We're going to go into it fairly gently uh, with Jonah and Nahum or as they should be pronounced, Jonah and Nahum first and then we'll move on to Amos and Hosea and then go to a major prophet as they're called because they're big ones, namely Isaiah, then Ezekiel. Now what is prophecy? What's it about? First of all, prophets were very ordinary men and women. A gift of prophecy is for both genders and there are prophetesses as well as prophets, but who were they? They were very ordinary people with a very extraordinary function and that function was to speak for God. But before you can speak for God, you must hear from God. You've got to receive the word before you can pass it on. So how did they hear from God? They heard in both words and pictures and the words became heavy, so much so that they felt a burden. I can identify with this and understand it. You've got a a heavy burden in you which is only lightened when you deliver it, when you pass it on to somebody else and give the heaviness to them. But a prophet is heavy, a prophet is heavy with the Word of God until he's unburdened the message that God has given him. But it may not come in words, it may come in pictures and there are two forms of picture that come. When you're awake, the pictures come in visions. When you're asleep, they come in dreams. And so you have all these ways of God communicating his word to people. That little diagram down at the bottom left-hand corner just shows how varied this way may be. God may speak, for example, to the body first quite literally in an audible voice to the ear. God can move the air in such a way that it becomes sound waves and he can speak in an audible way to the body. Uh, God didn't often do that and when he did many thought it was thunder but uh, he can make an audible voice. When he said to Jesus at his baptism, you are my beloved son, that was God speaking to a body. Or else God can put the words into your mind and the words are clearly there in your mind even though you didn't hear them with your ear. Or God can speak to your spirit and put words in your spirit that your mind doesn't understand. When you pray in tongues, God is speaking to your spirit and putting words through your spirit to your mouth but your mind doesn't understand what he's done. So God can give words to the spirit, to the mind or the body. They can be passed on from the body to the mind or the spirit to the mind but ultimately they all have to come out of the mouth. God could speak to a body and then straight to the mouth bypassing mind and spirit altogether. He once did that with a donkey, Balaam's ass, and God spoke through the donkey's body and mouth and certainly the donkey didn't have a mind or a spirit to get involved at all. So there are a whole variety of channels 
God can speak direct to the body through the mouth, direct to the mind and then the mouth, direct to the spirit and then the mouth, or to the spirit, then the mind, then the mouth, or the body, then the mind. Or the... There are a whole lot of ways, but ultimately it's got to come out of the mouth. So that's how people received the Word of God and then they gave it. And there were two particular messages that they gave. Either it was a message of challenge when people were doing wrong or a message of comfort when they were doing right. And since mostly Israel did things that were wrong, most of the prophetic messages are challenge rather than comfort. But when we get to Isaiah, we'll find that the first half of Isaiah is challenge and the second half is comfort ye, comfort ye my people. So you can tell what the people were like by the prophecies that were given to them. When things went wrong, they were challenged. When things went right, they were doing right. Now, a false prophet would only give the second. You can always tell a true prophet, they give both, appropriate to the situation. But false prophets only tell people what the people want to hear and they only give comfort. A true prophet will more often give this because when things are doing all right, God doesn't say much. You know, when you're working all right at work, the boss doesn't talk to you. It's usually if, if the boss comes and talks to you, it's because you're doing something wrong. And so the Lord spoke more frequently through prophets when things were going wrong and hence they got a reputation for being doom and gloom merchants that uh, they were constantly criticising and saying disaster ahead and indeed one prophet has become a byword for doom and gloom and that's Jeremiah. Actually when you read Jeremiah there are some lovely comforting things there. I have plans for you for good and not evil, he said, but most of what he said was pretty strong harsh stuff because they were doing wrong. Well now that's just a little background to prophets. And we are going to look at two now. We're going to look at Jonah and Nahum, or as they should be pronounced in Hebrew, Jonah and Nahum. And first let's get a little geography and a little history. Don't copy all that down, that's uh, so complicated it's hardly worth it. But uh, let's get a little geography first. Why have I put Jonah and Nahum together? Well, First of all, they both came from the same place and they both went to the same place and they both had the same sort of message. So let's look where they came from. Jonah or Jonah was born near Nazareth. He was the local hero to the people of Nazareth and Jesus must have heard about him from when he was a little boy. And it's interesting that Jesus only compared himself with Jonah among all the prophets and they came from the same village, which is interesting. Whereas Nahum or Nahum came from just a little further over, Nazareth is here, and he came from Capernaum. Kappa means village, Kappa Nahum. Got it? You didn't realise that before most of you. Uh, the Arab for village is Kufa, but uh, that's just a corruption of Kappa. And Capernaum means village of Nahum, which again was uh, Jesus' main base on the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus had a very close connection with these two prophets. Now then, they both therefore came from the north, which was the international part of Israel. The south, up in the hills, was a very nationalist area, 
but this was a very international area and therefore was called Galilee of the Nations. And the reason is that the crossroads of the world was in Galilee. A road from Europe came down the coast and crossed through there and went down to Arabia down here and the road from Africa came up the coast from Egypt and crossed through here and went up through Damascus and on to India and China. Therefore, everybody going from Asia to Africa or Europe to Arabia came through this crossroads and at the crossroads there was a little hill called Megiddo and the hill of Megiddo in Hebrew is Harmageddon and that's a famous name that I'm sure you've heard of where the last battles of history will be fought. So Nazareth is on this hill here overlooking the crossroads and as a boy Jesus must have seen everybody coming and going. It was like an airport lounge, you know, you saw every nationality. So Galilee was very international whereas up in the hills of Judea in the south it was very national, very isolated and right off main routes so that you had these two influences. Interesting, Jesus was very popular in the international place but he was very unpopular in the nationalist centre in the south where he was eventually crucified. So that just gives you a bit of the setting. Jonah and Nahum were northerners from Nazareth and therefore very much aware of international affairs and they went, both of them, to the same place which was Assyria. Now this is all desert, as you know the Arabian desert. The fertile areas in the Middle East are up the two rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates and up the river Nile and the little bit where the river Jordan is. We call this half circle the Fertile Crescent and that's why everybody going anywhere had to pass through the Promised Land. It's the very centre of the continents where they all meet in this narrow corridor between the sea and the desert and therefore the threats to this little holy land here came from the big east, west and east powers and so there were little lands squeezed between two power blocks and each of these two power, power blocks was always trying to overcome the other. Egypt was trying to overcome Mesopotamia, Mesopotamia over Egypt and they all had to go through the crossroads. Somebody has said about Israel, if you live in the middle of a crossroads you're bound to get run over and that's exactly what happened. We're concerned with a power that arose in the north of what is now Iraq, uh, Saddam Hussein's territory but it was then called Assyria with its capital at Nineveh which is quite a long way from here but you realise that when they came to try and take over Egypt they came from the north of the Holy Land. So though this was east and Egypt was west, in fact in this corridor it was north and south and all the threats to the people of God came from the north or the south. They were right in that narrow corridor. Now why did they go to Nineveh, both of them? Though they went 250 years apart or do I mean 150? We'll be able to check on that a um, little bit. Let's go to the history now. See, Jonah was the first prophet to go and challenge Assyria 
and uh, Nahum was the last. Now let's just get the date, 770 to 620. It's 150, 150 years apart. They both went because of the sheer wickedness of this Assyrian people and the Assyrian Empire altogether lasted about 750 years and it spread and it grew. In fact, at one stage they managed to take over Egypt. They came round the Fertile Crescent and took over Egypt. They got as far as Thebes. So it was a pretty big empire and I'm sure you've heard some of the names of the people. We're going to see a lot about Sennacherib when we come to Isaiah the prophet. But for the moment, it started about 1354 as quite a small people and gradually expanded, but it was the way they expanded. They expanded with great cruelty. They were one of the most cruel, brutal nations that history has seen. And one particularly horrible thing that they invented was to impale their enemies. They would stick wooden spikes in the ground with a very sharp point and then literally take someone and stick them on it. And you can imagine with a pail stuck up your bottom right inside, you were just left there till you died and they would impale thousands of people. And so they, they virtually ruled by terror and people were terribly afraid of the Assyrians. They were a bloody nation. I'm quoting Nahum there. He called them that. He called Nineveh, woe to that bloody city. And they were bloodthirsty, they were cruel, they were tyrants and if people thought that the Assyrians had their eye on their country, they were mortally afraid of what would happen. So that's the kind of background and I've just put that up to show you the great gap. Zephaniah also spoke about them but Nahum finally came and said, you're finished, God's going to wipe you out and sure enough, Nineveh fell in 612 and the whole of the Assyrian Empire disappeared in 607, five years later, immediately after Nahum. But it didn't disappear after Jonah and that was Jonah's problem as we're going to see. So that gives you just a little idea. Now let's come to the story of Jonah itself, a rather fishy story <laughs> and I'm afraid there is a huge debate going on as to whether it is fact or fiction, whether it's history or myth, whether this is a saga, did it actually happen or is it a fairy tale like Pinocchio? Pinocchio lived inside a whale if you've seen the Walt Disney film. Now I'm afraid modern scholars would almost unanimously say it is not fact. They either say it is a parable, a, a story with a moral and they say it's a story constructed from the imagination to challenge the hearers. It is essentially a missionary tract, a parable to remind Israel that they had a missionary task to the rest of the world and the story of Jonah running away from this missionary task is a moral for Israel to learn. That's the kind of approach. In other words, Israel had become inward-looking instead of outward-looking, serving the nations and here is a story to remind them of their mission. But when there is a parable in the Bible, it is usually very clearly indicated. Jesus told them this parable and parables never contain miracles, yet there are eight miracles in this little one. 
It's very, it's unheard of for a parable to include a miracle. A parable is simply a story about something that happens. Other scholars say it's an allegory. Here we've got that word again. You know, by and large, you should never treat anything in the Bible as an allegory unless it says it is. There are some, but uh, it doesn't say it is. But the idea of these scholars is that this is an allegory and therefore Jonah is a personification of Israel as John Bull or Britannia are personifications of our country or Uncle Sam is a personification of the United States, a mythical character who personifies the nation. And these scholars say that being swallowed by the whale is a kind of metaphorical way of presenting Israel being swallowed up in exile. Well, it all sounds very plausible, but uh, I don't agree with either. There are serious objections to treating Jonah as fiction. There are so many weighty reasons for treating it as fact. Number one, the style of the book is exactly the same as all the historical books. The wording, the style, the grammar is exactly the same as the Book of Kings. Secondly, it deals with real places and with real people who are mentioned elsewhere. Jonah is mentioned in the Book of Kings and so we can date him exactly from that, the reign of Jeroboam II. His father was Amittai. He is treated as a real person in the historical books of the Bible. Thirdly, Jesus treated Jonah as a real person. He believed in Jonah and the whale, or the great fish as it actually says, and Jesus said, a greater than Jonah is now here. And he was brought up in Nazareth where Jonah had been born. But above all, neither of these theories that Jonah is a parable or an allegory does justice to chapter 4. And that is the main question we've got to tackle. Why did Jonah run away? And once you've answered that question, the book of Jonah will open up to you. I'm afraid many people never even bother to ask the question. Why then are people so eager to treat Jonah as the man who never was? Why are they so reluctant to accept it as fact? Well, there are two big objections which we ought to deal with now. Uh, The first is that it's physically impossible for what happened to him and the second is that it is psychologically improbable that one Jewish preacher could convert a huge city when he wasn't even a native of that city. I mean, one little Jew arriving in the middle of London and preaching in Trafalgar Square, it seems psychologically improbable that the whole of London would repent, doesn't it? So these are the two difficulties we've got to face. So let's tackle the physically impossible one. There are two questions. Could it happen and could God make it happen? These are two separate questions. First of all, is it possible for a man to be swallowed by a great fish or a whale if it was one? Well, the blacksmith in Chalfon St. Peter, the village where I used to be pastor, had a son in America surnamed Brown, Howard Brown, and he trained whales in Marineland in California. And he had in a large tank a whale and a dolphin. 
They were great friends. And the dolphin died and the whale wouldn't allow them to touch the body of his dead friend. And the whale picked up the body of the dolphin in its mouth and it kept it for three days in its mouth and it wouldn't give it up and it kept popping the dolphin up above the water to try and get it to breathe again. Being a fellow mammal, he was trying to resuscitate it, give it the kiss of life. And Howard Brown showed us a a film he'd taken of this three days and the dolphin was just about the size of a man. It really was quite unusual and it made me think something. But actually we have a case and I have a very old newspaper cutting here and it is from the year, I think it's 1921, but uh, no, I can't just spot it. And it concerns a man called James Bartley who was in a whaling ship off the Falkland Islands and the whaling ship, the big ship, put the uh, harpooners into a small rowing boat to go after a whale which they'd sighted, there she blows, and uh, the whale came up under the rowing boat and tipped the four harpooners into the sea. Three were rescued but one disappeared and the captain wrote in his log, uh, swept overboard, presumed drowned James Bartley. They caught the actual whale and they were cutting it up when there was a shout and they saw something moving inside the whale's belly and they cut it open and here was James Bartley. He was in a deep unconscious coma but he was breathing and after a few days he recovered consciousness in the captain's cabin and survived for the rest of a normal life with the single exception that all his skin where it was not covered by clothes had been eaten away by the digestive juices of the whale and was corroded and bleached. So he had a very unusual appearance for the rest of his life but he survived. Well, so it's possible. But I have the feeling we have made too big a problem and I think it's foolish to make too big a problem for ourselves. For example, you know, one man, a Salvation Army officer once said, if the Bible said that Jonah swallowed the whale, I'd believe it. (laughs) Well now, that kind of blind faith uh, just draws ridicule from the world. Uh, It would take some doing. all things are possible with God but the Bible doesn't ask you to believe that. But here is the thought that I want to leave with you. Was Jonah dead or alive inside the whale? I'd never asked that question till I saw that film of that whale with the dolphin in its mouth trying to get it to breathe again. And uh, I then reread the book of Jonah and to my astonishment I found that all the evidence points to the fact that the whale picked up a dead body. Well, here's the evidence. If you read chapter 2 carefully, you discover that Jonah drowned. He says that when the sailors threw him into the sea, he sank to the bed of the Mediterranean Sea and lay there at the roots of the mountains with his head in the seaweed. Now it takes about a minute and a half to drown. It takes that long to reach the bottom of the sea. I used to think that the whale was floating around on the surface with its mouth open when they threw him overboard. All the Sunday school pictures showed me that. No picture showed me his body lying in the seaweed at the bottom of the Mediterranean. Clearly what the whale picked up was his body. 
Furthermore, the prayer which he prays, he says, I am in Sheol. I am in the pit whose bars have closed on me forever. And he describes his last moment of consciousness, he says, as my life was ebbing away and the waters engulfed my throat, I remembered you, O Lord. In other words, if this is so and all the evidence is there, then what happened to Jonah was not survival but resurrection. That when the whale spewed him up, God reunited his spirit and body, which would make a whole lot of sense when Jesus said, as he was in the belly of the whale, so will I be in the heart of the earth. Does that make sense to you? Now, I'm not trying to find an easier explanation for worldly sceptics because actually they would find survival easier to believe than resurrection. So I'm not trying to explain Scripture away. I'm trying to get to grips with what Scripture actually says. I find we often have an impression of what Scripture says because we learned it in Sunday school and so on, and then when you actually read it, you might be quite wrong. I believe Jonah is the most outstanding example of resurrection in the Old Testament after three days and three nights, and that Jesus automatically would identify with his experience and say, no sign will be given you except the sign of Jonah when there were sceptical Jews asking for him for a sign. But whether he was dead or alive, either way, it is perfectly possible if God made it happen. And here we come up against the real question of miracles because actually in Jonah there are eight physical miracles, not just one, but eight. And people only usually know about the one, the whale. Actually, there's a far bigger miracle than the whale. In the last chapter, God tells a worm to do something and it does it. Now, that is a big miracle. You see, my friend Brown in California could train whales quite easily. They're highly intelligent mammals. But I've never seen a worm circus. (coughs) Have you? Never seen men trying to train worms. But God can tell a worm what to do now. That is a big miracle. And when anybody says to me, you don't still believe about that story about the whale and Jonah, do you? I say, that's nothing. I believe about the worm too. And they usually look quite blank because they have no idea. But you see, what this is, it's presenting a picture of a God who is in total control of everything he's made. Now then, just run through the eight miracles. God sends a wind that causes a storm and the ship is in danger. They cast lots to find out who on board is the cause of divine anger and God can control lots. He does it in Acts 1. See, that's why they cast lots in the Old Testament because God could control them when they couldn't. See, God can catch a coin when you toss it up and turn it over the right number of times if he's in full control. When they threw Jonah overboard, God calmed the sea. Then he sent the great fish to swallow the body. Then he made the fish vomit the body. Then he grew a vine overnight. Actually, it was a castor plant. I'll show you a picture shortly. And then he sent a worm to eat the roots of the plant and it died. And then it says he sent the hot scorching desert wind. 
Eight times in this little book, God controls nature. Now you've got to decide between three philosophies. There is a biblical philosophy, but there are many other philosophies. Now I mentioned three. We're back to isms again. And these three philosophies are widely held in our country and the three main philosophies held. And they differ according to whether they believe that God created the world then, at the beginning, and whether he still controls it now. Now atheism says God didn't create the world and he therefore doesn't control it. That's atheism. It's very common. But what is the most common philosophy in England is deism. And deism believes God created it then but that he can't control it now. And I would say the majority of people in church are deists. Somebody once asked me what the biggest difference the charismatic renewal has made to Christians in this country. And I'll be talking to a sixth form in your school about this next Monday or the Monday afterwards. Monday week. The biggest difference is turned deists into theists. And it's renewed a belief in miracle. Because deists can't believe in miracles. They will go to church and thank God that he's the maker of heaven and earth, but they won't pray about the weather because God can't do anything about the weather now. They don't expect miracles because God can't intervene now. And poor God, he's no longer in control. It's the laws of nature that control nature. But theism is the biblical philosophy and theism says God not only created the world then, but he controls it now. See? Now, there's a funny group of people who when they read their Bible are theists, but from Monday to Saturday they're deists. Do you know what I mean? I've met some Christians who believe any miracle if it's bound in black leather. But miracles today, they don't believe. So practically they're deists, but theoretically they're theists. Do you get me? Now then, the biblical philosophy is theism that the God who made everything still controls it. Now what about the psychological improbability that a whole city like that would convert? Let's just show you something of what the city was like. That is a picture of Nineveh as it was when Jonah went to it, and that's just the centre of it. It was an enormous city and an impressive city. And uh, that's all that's left of this palace. Now it's just a heap of rubble. Well, the huge city did repent when Jonah preached, a foreigner from an unknown country. They were religious and even superstitious. They believed in gods. That's a start. Second, they were guilty and guilty guilt makes cowards of us all. When they were accused of what they'd done, they knew they were guilty. Thirdly, the revival started at the bottom among the ordinary people and worked its way up to the palace. Fourthly, they had the sign of Jonah. What's the matter with your body? How did it get like that? And he told them the story. He says, there's a God in heaven and I couldn't get away from him. This is what happened to me. So they had a visible sign to see. And above all, when the Holy Spirit works, things happen. I don't have any difficulty in believing that whole city repented. And Jesus believed it. He said, the people of Nineveh will rise up in the day of judgment because they repented 
when they heard about me and you didn't. The big question, of course, is why did Jonah run away from his task? And uh, that really is the most important question. And that is chapter 4, which is rarely taught or preached on or read, and yet it's the very heart of this little story. Why was Jonah so reluctant? Who was he thinking about primarily when he said, I'm not going to go and preach there, I'm going to run away? And he went down to Joppa and he found a boat. Let's just uh, see what Joppa, there's the harbour at Joppa today and that's where he found the boat heading for Spain. Incidentally, there's the castor plant that grew up overnight. Now that's the literal word of the Hebrew, a castor oil plant, which grew up quickly. Well, now why did he run away from this task? Why was he so reluctant? Some people say, well, he was thinking primarily of himself. He was just scared to go. He feared being impaled. Well, so would I. He knew how cruel they were. So he ran away because he didn't want to finish up on a spike. That's one theory. Wrong one. Second, he, I mean, he was quite happy for the sailors to throw him in the sea, apparently, so he wasn't afraid of death. Secondly, people say, well, he was thinking about the Gentiles. They were Gentiles. Why should they hear about the God of Israel? This is a kind of reverse of anti-Semitism. This is anti-Gentilism. Is that the reason? But actually, he fled away to Gentiles in Tarshish. So it wasn't that he didn't want to go to Gentiles. Others were saying that he was thinking of the Assyrians, the wickedest people on earth, that I'm not going to preach to people like that. No, I don't think we've touched it yet. Others say he was really thinking of Israel because Assyria was the biggest threat to little Israel. They were the biggest world power and expanding and little Israel was next on the list. And he says, I don't want to go to them. They're the enemy and they are a future threat. I don't think any of these comes anywhere near. Let Jonah speak for himself. The result of his preaching was that they all repented, disaster was averted. He said, six weeks from now God will wipe Nineveh out unless you repent. And they did. Now, an evangelist like Billy Graham would be thrilled to bits if a whole city repented. Jonah was just the opposite. He was quite angry and he went and sat on a hill outside the town and he said to God, I told you this would happen. I know what you're like. I knew you'd let them off. I knew you wouldn't go through with it. You'd just threaten them. With it. You wouldn't go through with it. This is how he talked. Now why is he talking like that? He knew the warning he'd given was actually an appeal. Now is it that he doesn't want people saved? Is he so narrow-minded and so bigoted that he, he doesn't want people to repent? No, I don't believe it's that. He, he says this, he says, was not this what I said in my own country, that you are a God full of mercy? I told you this back in my land. Now what's the significance of that? To get the answer, you've got to go back to the book of Kings and find out what happened to Jonah in his own land because you don't have it in this book, you have it in the book of Kings. And in the book of Kings it says that Jonah was called to be a prophet and was sent to the king of Israel who was a bad king. 
he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And God said, Jonah, I want you to go to the king. He's a bad king and I want you to give him a message. And Jonah responded positively. He said, about time, Lord. It's about time you dealt with that king. Now what's the message? And the Lord said, go and tell the king I want to bless him. And I'm going to enlarge his borders and make him great. But he's a wicked king. That's the wrong message, Lord. Don't you understand? He needs a message of justice and punishment. You go and tell him I'm going to bless him. And he went to the king and he said, Thus saith the Lord, you wicked king, I want to bless you. (laughs) And Jonah was saying to the Lord in his heart, It'll never work, Lord. If you bless bad people, they just get worse. Now what happened to the king? He got worse and he became worse and worse and worse. And the more the Lord blessed him, the worse he got. And Jonah came to the conclusion that mercy doesn't help wicked people. Beginning to get the feel? Lord, I know your business better than you do. If you let them off and you just encourage them, they get worse. I'm telling you, that's what'll happen. And he sat outside Nineveh and said, let's just see what happens, Lord. I'm going to watch this city and see whether you're letting them off will cure them or not, whether they'll get better or worse. And then that plant grew up alongside, he was very thankful for it, gave him shade from the sun, and then that wretched worm ate the roots, it died, and Jonah was very angry again. He said, Lord, what do you do that for? And God said, Jonah, do you do well to be angry about the plant? Are you sure you're right to be angry about Nineveh? Listen, there are 500,000 children in that city and much cattle, and I have a heart for them. Jonah was jealous for the Lord, and I understand that. When you see how people abuse God's mercy, doesn't it make you angry? And God blesses them and it just makes them worse, and you say, God, that's not the way to handle wicked people. We forget how patient God is and how full of mercy he is and how many chances he wants to give people. That's what Jonah was overlooking. But I share his jealousy for the Lord. It does make you angry when people are so abusing his mercy and taking for granted that he will let them off. Like the dying Frenchman Heiner in Paris after a lifetime of sin. His last words were, Dear ma pardonera, says a metier, God will forgive me, that's his trade. Makes you angry when people treat God as an easy touch. And that was Jonah's problem. He loved God too much. He was too jealous for him. He didn't realise that God has a lot of mercy and patience and will give wicked people every chance he can. Dear old Jonah, I sympathise with him, but we can go to the opposite extreme and say God will never be angry. God will never punish. And that's where the prophet Nahum comes in. You have been listening to David Pawson's Unlocking the Bible. Visual materials featured in this talk and other free resources like this can be found online at davidpawson.org.